Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Philippians chapter 3, where my Bible is open. And it is Philippians chapter 3, where your Bible needs to be open. We're going to read a couple of verses out of that chapter momentarily that will uh, serve as a catalyst and in some ways will undergird everything that we want to talk about for these next few minutes. And as you're turning to Philippians chapter 3, let me just quickly join in the welcome from earlier. What a fine number we do have in attendance this morning, and it's just a privilege to be able to to worship together and to come before the throne of God and offer Him our our praise and our adoration as we seek to to give Him the honor and glory that He is due on this, the Lord's Day. I hope that you appreciate what a tough job that I and preachers all over the world have this morning as we stand before audiences of people many of whom we know stayed up way past their bedtimes last night to watch a big ball drop down out of the sky. And now we have the daunting task of trying to keep everyone awake and alert and engaged while we try to talk about important things from the Word of God. And so recognizing that challenge, I've doubly prepared myself today to keep things fiery and try to do my part on this end. And so I hope that you'll do your part on your end to stay engaged and to listen carefully, talking about some important things, I think, this morning in the Word of God. In Philippians 3, then, let's read together some words and some ideas that really ought to sound a little bit familiar because they really were evident in that last song that we just sang. In Philippians 3 and in verse 12, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Today, of course, is the first day of a brand new year. Happy New Year. I haven't actually said that yet. Of course, the beginning of a new year can be a really exciting time for many of us. The new year brings with it an opportunity to to maybe just make a fresh start, to set some goals for ourselves, to really just look forward to what 2017 has in store for us. The new year often has a way of kind of just awakening within us an optimism and an eagerness about the future. Particularly as Christians, we're thinking about that in a spiritual sense. We're like Paul in this passage. We're straining forward to what lies ahead as we press onward and upward in Christ Jesus. We want to reach greater heights of service. We want to grow in our spiritual development and in our maturity. In fact, wouldn't it really be great if all of us in this room could make Paul's words our very own in this coming year? But unfortunately, not all of us can say what Paul says here. Because even though that idea of moving forward and pressing on, even though that sounds wonderful, for some of us, for some of us, we're still stuck in the past. And I'm not just talking about maybe the recent past of 2016. We may be stuck even further in the past. For some Christians, the idea, verse 13, of forgetting what lies behind, that's a real struggle. Because they continue to be haunted by the sins and the mistakes and the transgressions of the past. They know, mentally they know, about Jesus' offer to forgive their sins. They understand what they need to do in order to receive that forgiveness. 
They've done those things. In fact, they've even done those things several times before. And yet, yet they still don't feel very forgiven. And as a result, they are trapped in the past. They are unable to truly move forward, as Paul talks about in this passage, because they are shackled, they're handcuffed by bad memories of the bad things that they did in days gone by. Well, this morning, if that describes you in any way, I want to help us to break those chains of lingering guilt. This morning, I want to help us to leave the past behind. My walk with the Lord in 2017, your walk with the Lord in 2017 and beyond, it can only work when I fully accept the grace and the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus. When I talk, when I take what it is that I know in my head, I know in my mind, I mentally understand it. But when I take that and get that into my heart and really believe it, only then, only then will I be able to leave the past in the past. This morning I want to offer some ideas that may help some of you to lay down that heavy burden that you've been carrying for a very long time. And I am going to do this morning, I'll go ahead and tell you, I am going to do a whole lot better than just stand up here and say things like, oh, you know, just get over it. Come on, just just let it go. Come on, you know, just move on with your life. Stop thinking about the past. I'm going to do better than that because, because that kind of talk, that just doesn't help. That's not helpful at all. Instead, what we want to do is we want to turn to the ultimate source of help. We want to turn to the Word of God. And when we do that, we want to find four tangible and practical and necessary steps that will help us to leave the past where it belongs in the past. Are you ready for that? I think that needs to start for us in a very a very obvious place, but I really would be remiss if I did not include it right here at the beginning of this lesson. If I am going to successfully leave the past behind, then first and foremost, I have to be forgiven of my sins. I just do. Would you find 1 John chapter 1 with me? In 1 John chapter 1, the number one hindrance to leaving the past behind is whenever we have sin in our lives... And we haven't dealt with it. You know, deep inside each and every one of us, in a place that many of us would probably rather not admit even exists, there is a place where sin often goes to hide. It's a safe haven for sin to be. And the truth of the matter is that as long as I allow that sin to hide in there and to take up residence in my heart, I'll never be free from the guilt of that sin. In 1 John chapter 1, John tells us that sin must be dealt with. In 1 John chapter 1, look in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Drop down to verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. The very first step here in this process is what? We need to stop denying. That's what John's saying here. Stop denying. Stop pretending. Stop making excuses. We need to acknowledge sin for what it is. Sin is not just a harmless mistake. Sin is not somebody else's fault. Sin is not, this is the way I was born. No. Sin, biblically defined, is rebellion against God. Sin is my choice to do what I want to do instead of obeying the Lord's commands. The reason a lot of people never get over the sins of the past is because they're stuck right here. They will not admit that I have sinned. There is sin in my life and I've not dealt with it yet. 
Because until we open up our eyes to sin, until we own up to our sin, we're never going to be able to do the next important thing, and that is to turn away from our sin. And what's the Bible word for that? The Bible word for that is the word repentance. A person cannot, absolutely cannot experience God's forgiveness while continuing in their sin and their wrongdoing. That just does not work. What it is certainly absolutely true that grace and mercy and pardon, that that is an act of divine initiative, it is also true that the receiving of that grace and mercy and pardon, that comes whenever we turn away from sin, whenever we repent. That's Acts chapter 8. Would you find Acts the 8th chapter? In Acts chapter 8, the story is told here of Simon the sorcerer, a fellow who obeys the gospel, become a Christian, but very soon thereafter he gets entangled back in sin. And so Peter comes to him, and he's very forthright and straightforward. He says to him in verse 21, he says, Buddy, your heart's not right with the Lord. Then look at verse 22. He tells him, Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Why don't I feel forgiven? Well, is it because I have yet to really actually repent? Is it maybe possible because I still treasure my sin? I still long for my sin? I'm still harboring that sin? Maybe I actually just resent the fact that God wants me to actually give up my sin. All of those are attitudes that war against repentance and ultimately they war against us being able to find forgiveness. Forgiveness demands that I stop denying Demands that I start repenting. And then the third component in all of that is, is I need to talk to the Lord about my sin. What Peter say to Simon there in verse 22? Repent and pray to the Lord. Would you find 1 John 1 again? In 1 John 1, we read verses 8 and 10. What about that verse sandwiched in between? In verse 9, 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, John says there, if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess. Confess means to say the same thing as. And whenever we confess our sin, what we are doing is we are saying the same thing about sin that God says about our sin. That it is wrong. That it is evil. That it is ugly. That it is destructive. That there is no excuse for it. That there is no rationalization for it. We are saying to God, God, I did this. And I'm so sorry that I did this. And it's totally my fault. And I'm responsible for this. I'm not pointing the finger at somebody else. I'm responsible for doing this. And I don't ever want to do it again. Lord, please forgive me of my sin. Can I just add right here, can I really push the idea that when we're confessing to the Lord our sins, we need to be doing a whole lot more than just the old generic, Lord, please forgive me of all my sins since I last sought Thee for pardon. No, 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 no. This is the place and this is the time for specific praying. Where I say to the Lord, Lord, this is what I have done. Lord, I lusted after that woman today. Lord, I had impure thoughts in my mind and it made me think about things that I should not be thinking about. Lord, I'm asking you to forgive me of the sin of lust. Or Lord, I am a gossip. My mouth is just filled with words and details about everybody else's lives. And I go spewing that information to everybody else. Lord, I'm asking you to forgive me of the sin of gossip. You see what that is? That kind of specific confession where I'm dealing with specific sins. What that does is that says to the Lord, Lord, I'm taking sin seriously. 
I'm seeing sin and I'm thinking about sin in the way that you think about sin. And I am confident in saying that when we take these kinds of God-given steps, then we are forgiven. That is heaven's assurance to us. And that provides for us remarkable freedom from the guilt of the past. Now, as soon as I say that, as soon as I put point number one on the screen there, somebody's thinking right now, Josh, I've done that. You don't know how many times I've done I've done that dozens of times. Dozens upon dozens upon dozens of times in my life. And I still have guilt. I still have self-doubt about my salvation. I can't stop thinking about what I've done. I've talked to God about it. I've prayed about it. I've been as candid and as open and as honest as I can about it to the Lord. But when it's all said and done, I still don't feel forgiven. How can I get shed of this? Well, it seems to me that secondly this morning, we would do well to spend a little bit of time in reconsidering our image and our perception of God. I need to realize just how much God wants to forgive me. I believe that this is crucially important. Because when we talk about forgiveness, we are talking about something that is very much a part of God's gracious character. It's just a part of His nature and part of who He is. But think about this, just the very fact that God would even save us in the first place to provide an opportunity for people to be saved, the fact that God would even have that thought or that idea, fully well understanding that none of us have any standing at all to somehow earn or deserve or merit that gift of salvation, that ought to say something to us just about the very character and quality of God. That God is a forgiving, merciful, heavenly Father. It's just part of who He is. And the Scripture just uniformly, over and over, shows us just how much God wants to forgive. Can we notice just a couple of places? Look in Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, I think this is a wonderful psalm. Just stunning language that is used in Psalm 103. And it helps us to understand God's great desire to forgive. I think that just doesn't get said enough. God desires, He longs to forgive people. In Psalm 103, read with me beginning in verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all your diseases. Drop down to verse 8 now. The Lord, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. Notice verse 12 now. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. I need you to just focus very intently on those verses. And I want you to think about your mental image. What is your mental conception of God? When you have that mental image of God in your mind, can I ask you now, does it look like this? Is this the picture of God that you carry around with you in your mind on a day-to-day basis? Because the fact of the matter is, so many people, they carry around a very very different image of God in their heads. They carry around a mental image of God as just being furious and angry all the time. 
Like he's some, you know, raging cosmic hothead, just so temperamental in every way. And not surprisingly, that creates a tremendous barrier and stumbling block for people when they think of God in those ways. They think of God kind of like the, kind of like the great wizard in the Wizard of Oz. You remember about the wizard? Dorothy brings the scarecrow and the, the lion and the tin man and they go to, they go to the big palace or the big castle to see the wizard. And the wizard, of course, is, he's hidden out of plain sight. You can't see him, but he shouts. And he booms his voice, thunders his voice, and he intimidates people, and he frightens people and scares them away. And that's the way I think a lot of people think about God. Oz is angry, God is angry. I tell you this, you read your Bible, you'll find that that's not the picture of God. That is not an accurate representation of the God of the Bible. You want to see how Scripture depicts God? Look in Luke the 15th chapter, please. In Luke chapter 15, this is a well-known parable. It is a parable of Jesus. It is the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, here is a son who is a terrible sinner. He has humiliated and he has embarrassed his father. And yet, I want you to notice what Jesus says about this father, who of course represents God the Father. In Luke 15 and in verse 20, this prodigal son, he arose and he came to his father... But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The Bible picture is of the prodigal son's father scanning the horizon day after day after day, searching, longing, hoping, that today would be the day that his wayward son would come to his senses and that he would come home so that he could then forgive, pardon, restore, and reconcile him to himself. That is a biblical picture of a father who loves you fiercely. A father who wants you to be saved. A father who longs and desires to forgive you so much so that he sent his only begotten son to die a horrible death on that hill called Calvary in order to pay the price for your sins. And if you are imagining and your conception of God is this idea of some kind of you know mean, hot-tempered tyrant who just, just kind of like that all the time, who does not want you to actually come back home, then my friend, you've got the wrong God. You don't have the God of the Bible. You've got a very unscriptural view of the Lord. One fellow put it this way. He said, he said, the devil, the devil puts a horror movie poster in the theater window. When in reality, what's playing on the screen is a beautiful story about a father's love. And you know what? That's exactly right. The devil wants you to see God as just a wild, maniacal, just so mad at people all the time. That's what the devil wants us to see. And certainly there is, there is a side of God, the fierceness. There is a anger, a righteous anger that God has. There is a wrathful side. The Bible does describe that. That's not a complete picture of the Lord. Look in Acts chapter 3, please. In Acts chapter 3, this is the second recorded occasion of the gospel being preached publicly. In Acts chapter 3, this is Peter who has an opportunity once again to preach. And look at what part of that sermon, what he says. In Acts chapter 3, in verse 19... Peter says, repent therefore, repent therefore and turn again, notice this, that your sins may be blotted out. 
You understand what blotted out means here? Peter's actually drawing from a prophecy in Isaiah the 44th chapter. And he is speaking to a culture of people who would understand about the concept of writing on a wax tablet. Wax tablets were very common in the first century. And they were a very popular form, a very popular writing surface to have. Because unlike other writing surfaces, with a wax tablet, you could actually edit it. If you messed up in some way, you had a remedy to fix that. There's some characters and some writing there on that left side there of that tablet. And so let's say that you're writing there on that particular surface and, ah, you, you make a mistake. You've got some characters that, ah, just bad handwriting. It's just all messed up and you, you need to do it over again. Well, what you would do is you just, you'd heat that wax up a little bit. Get a little bit warm. Get a little bit of fire under there. And those characters that you had written on there incorrectly, they would all get kind of soft and mushy and then they would, they would all just kind of smooth back out. Those mistakes would be blotted out. Blotted out. What a powerful illustration of forgiveness. Gone without a trace. Melted down. You can't even see it anymore. You know, God, God does not forgive in a, in a halfway sense. You know what I'm talking about here? Think about whenever you get like a, like a stain on your pants. And you, you, know, you put some shout on it and you try to scrub it and get it out and that doesn't seem to work. You throw it in the washer and you run it through there and take it out of the dryer. And, ah, still, it's, you got this big outline or maybe a very faint version of that stain still on there. It's not completely removed. Well, that's not the way God does with forgiveness. That's not how He forgives. The Bible says that when God forgives, He completely blots it out. Stricken from the record. That is divine mercy and divine grace. I read once of a fella who was asking some questions about forgiveness. And he asked and said, Are you really sure that God will forgive me? And the reply that he received was, Absolutely, sure God will forgive you. That's God's job. Now that answer, that's God's job, it bothers me a little bit on a couple of different fronts. One, it seems to kind of take sin in a very flippant kind of way. Or probably even more importantly, it doesn't seem to reckon with the idea that forgiveness, that's more than just God's job. It is God's delight. That's what we need to understand. God wants to do that. It is His joy. It is His hope. It is His desire for you. He wants to forgive. And so as I am reminded of that important truth, coupled with the things that we talked about in point number one, I can be assured that I am forgiven and that will then give me the motivation that I need to leave the sins of the past in the past. Thirdly then, piggybacking right off of that idea, is the idea that if I'm ever going to be able to move forward, I need to understand and I need to accept my new identity in Christ Jesus. Who are we as Christians? Who are we? Are we wretched sinners who have been forgiven by God's grace? Or are we saints who sometimes sin and fall short? Now, those are not the exact same thing. That's an important distinction being made there. Because who we are, that forms the very basis for our identity, our very lives in Christ Jesus. 
Can I highlight just a couple of passages in the New Testament that stress this idea of who we are now that we are in Christ? Look in Colossians chapter 3, for example. In Colossians chapter 3, notice in verses 9 and 10. In Colossians 3 and in verses 9 and 10, Paul says there, For in Him, or excuse me, that's chapter 2, chapter 3, Colossians 3 verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have, notice this, Put off the old self with its practices, verse 10 now, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Think about all of that there. We are not that old person anymore. In Christ, in Christ, I am somebody new. I am a new man, or you are a new woman. That language is repeated in Romans the sixth chapter. Would you find Romans chapter 6? This is a passage that we cite very often because it talks about baptism. But I want you to notice some things here about baptism. And this is probably some things about baptism that we don't stress enough. In Romans chapter 6 and in verse 4. In Romans 6 and in verse 4, Paul says, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I'm a new person. Verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Passages like that help us to see that we have an entirely new identity in Christ. And those, of course, are not the only descriptions of Christians in the pages of the New Testament. Other passages that come to mind are passages that say that we are light in this world. Ephesians 5 verse 8. That we are the sons of light. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 5. That we are the children of God. John chapter 1 verse 12. Much of the appeal in the New Testament to change and to modify and to alter our behavior and to be different It is predicated on an understanding of our newness. We are new in Christ Jesus. We are new creatures. We are saints. We're not sinners anymore. Now, does that mean that we don't ever sin again? No, that's not what that means. That does not mean that we are sinless. Nor does it mean that we are ignorant whenever we do sin. But it does mean that our hearts and our minds and our lives, they are now fundamentally different. They are fundamentally dedicated to Jesus Christ and committed to Him fully. The truth of the matter is, the term sinner, predominantly in the New Testament, the term sinner is almost used exclusively to refer to our lives before we became Christians. So who are you? Who am I? Who are you? You are a Christian Which means that you are a person who is opposed to sin. You have died to sin. You are not under its dominion anymore. In fact, your concerns that you have about forgiveness, all the worries that you have about the guilt of the past, that you don't know if God has forgiven me, I want you to understand that all of that, all of that says that you are now spiritually sensitive. And that's an important quality to have. Please don't ever think that the idea that you are sensitive about your sin, that somehow that's a curse. It's not. That's a wonderful thing to have. Because before you became a Christian, you just kind of sinned willy-nilly, didn't you? You just did whatever you wanted to do. You chose to revel in sin. You didn't care about the consequences of it. You didn't care about that. You didn't worry about what God thought about all of that. But now, 
In Christ? Now you do care. Now you do think about it. Now you are concerned what God thinks about all of that. You are now willingly choosing to serve and follow the Lord because you love the Lord. I remember a preacher one time, he described Christians as a decided people. Christians are a decided people. And I absolutely love that. We are. We have decided to follow Jesus. We have decided to put sin in the rearview mirror. We have decided to accept the grace and mercy of God. Again, I know and I'm fully aware of the fact that there are still times that we fall short and we sin. But those occasions, those occasions in which we sin, those are merely remnants of the old self that we are seeking to put off day by day and to destroy day by day. And the truth of the matter is, when I look there in Romans chapter 6, I have concluded that we have actually sold baptism very, very short. Yes, it is true that baptism is necessary for salvation, and we're quick to point that out. And yes, it is true that baptism is for the remission of sins, absolutely, and we're quick to point that out. But sometimes as we get done saying those two important points, we seem to quit talking about baptism. We quit talking about the effects that baptism has on our life. Paul says that baptism, not only does it save, not only does it wash our sins away, But Romans 6 says, thirdly, that baptism changes you. It makes you that new person, that new creature in Christ. Now, having said all of that here on this third point, somebody's thinking, Josh, all right, that all sounds real good. Those are great verses to read. That's a bunch of good doctrine for you to be laying out there. But what's that got to do with leaving the past behind? I'll tell you what has to do with leaving the past behind. When I understand this, this helps me to see myself as God sees me. God does not look down and see me as some miserable wretch, just utterly useless, of no value whatsoever, just some terrible, you know, a pest, almost like kind of a roach. you got a roach in your kitchen, you're just trying to get that thing out of there, you want it gone. God doesn't treat us and look at us in that way. God looks at me and He sees me as a saint in Jesus Christ. I've been forgiven of my sins and that makes me, that makes me His child. And I am convinced that those who still wallow in the sins of the past oftentimes are the ones who have not fully accepted their new identity in Christ. They keep writing sinner on their name tag when God is trying so hard to write the word saint on that name tag. They keep identifying themselves with the things of the past while God is trying earnestly to bring them to the joy of the present. Let me ask you, could that be your problem? If you're struggling with the past, could it be that you don't see yourself as a full-fledged member of the family of God? I'll tell you, the solution to that kind of really just almost perverse kind of thinking is you need to deepen your relationship with your Heavenly Father. You need to trust Him more. Just like as a parent, we want our children to trust us and to know that we love them and that they are a part of this family. You need to work on your relationship with God so that you understand your identity in the Lord. God sees you as His adopted child redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You need to see yourself in that exact same way. All of that then leads me to this final idea this morning. What do we do when we find ourselves wrestling with the sins of the past? Well, what we want to do fourthly is we want to just stand on the promises that are given in God's Word. 
You remember how Jesus combated temptation while He was there in the wilderness? We'll actually read those verses this evening. You remember how Jesus combated those temptations of the devil with Scripture? That's how Jesus dealt with that. We want to do that exact same thing. As the devil is trying to harass us and to cause us problems by drumming up the things of the past, we want to just go to the Scripture and fight him off with the Bible. Can I give you some passages that I think would just be well to, to write these down or to highlight in your Bible? Two or three passages that don't often get a whole lot of love. Look in the Old Testament with me in Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, here's three passages where when you're struggling with the sins of the past and you feel like you've kind of exhausted all these other remedies that we've talked about, you just need to sit down with your Bible and you need to read these verses and you need to review the blessed promises of God. First of all, in Isaiah 1, look in verse 18. In Isaiah 1 verse 18, the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. What a powerful verse that is. Can I add to that secondly what's said in Jeremiah 31? In Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet here, he speaks to and is looking forward to the new covenant that is to come. In Jeremiah 31, look in verse 34. In Jeremiah 31 verse 34, No longer shall they... Excuse me, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Notice this. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Can I add one more in this connection in the book of Micah? In Micah chapter 7. Here's a book of the Bible we never go to. In Micah chapter 7. There's a thrilling metaphor that is used here by the prophet in Micah chapter 7. Read with me in verses 18 and 19. In Micah 7 in verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in steadfast love. Verse 19. He will again have compassion on us He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Notice this. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Do you see how reading those passages, how reading Scripture, how that just shores up our faith? You get to reading those kinds of statements over and over again in the Old Testament. And then you combine that with all those passages that we've read from the New Testament this morning and a whole bunch more that we can add to that list. And eventually, it really just becomes, as you read all of these promises over and over again about the Lord saying, I'm going to forgive. This is how great God's forgiveness is. It really eventually just becomes almost a a believe it or not kind of proposition. Either you just believe what God is saying here, or you don't. And so the question is, do we believe the promises of forgiveness that they are true? Do we believe that God will do what He says He's going to do? Let me illustrate it for you this way. Imagine that you're driving your friend to the airport. Because your friend's planning a trip. They're going to fly down to Hawaii. going to try to get away from the winter weather that's fixing to come. Going to go down to Hawaii for a couple weeks and just, just enjoy a time down in Hawaii. 
And as you're fixing to pull into the, to the drive there at the airport, your friend remembers and says, Oh no, I forgot to shut the garage door. I left the garage door open. And so he then asks, Do you mind when you drop me off, could you go back to my house and I'll give you the code, here's the code that you punch in, and shut my garage door for me. Would you take care of that for me? And what do you say? Well, if you're a good friend, you're going to say, absolutely, not a problem. As soon as I drop you off, hopping in the car, and I'm going right back down there, and I'll get it taken care of. No problem whatsoever. I'll punch in the code and get your garage door shut. Well, you get over there, and you punch in the code, get the garage door shut. It's like a one-minute job. And then suddenly, like you know, two seconds later, beep, you get a text message on your phone. And it's your friend, and he says, hey, did you get that garage door shut? And you reply back, yes, got it shut, just like I promised. Well, a couple of hours go by. All of a sudden, you get an email. And the email says, hey, we've got Wi-Fi on the plane. I've got email here. Just wondering, did you get that garage door shut? I'm kind of worried about it. So you reply back, yes, I got the garage door shut, just like I promised and just like I said I did. Well, later that evening, you're perusing on the Internet and you get a message on Facebook. Hey, I just checked into the hotel, just wondering, what about that garage door? Did you get it shut? Yes, I put the garage door down. It's taken care of. couple of days go by. You go out to the mailbox, you open it up, what do you find? You find a postcard in there. Greetings from Hawaii. You turn it over on the backside, what does it say? Hey, did you remember to shut that garage door? After a while, what do you start wondering to yourself? You start wondering, what is wrong with this person? Do they not believe me when I say, I got the garage door shut? And you see, not only is that a problem, because it seems like they don't really trust me, but on top of that, they're not even enjoying that big luxurious trip to Hawaii because they're too worried about whether or not I did what I promised I was going to do. You see the parallel now to what we're talking about this morning? What we just read in those three Old Testament passages are the very promises of the God of heaven. And what I want to know is, when are we going to quit saying to God, God, did you get that garage door shut? Hey God, just wanted to check in. What about that garage door? Did you take care of that? When God says He'll do it, He does it. And what we need to do is trust His Word. And that's really what I believe is just so troubling, at least in my mind, about the whole forgive yourself concept. You hear that so often today. Hey, if you're struggling with sins of the past, hey, you just need to forgive yourself. That's what you need to Forgive yourself and just move on with your life. Well, listen, folks, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does not say that the remedy to the problem of the sins of the past is to just forgive yourself. No, what the Bible says, and in fact what the Bible is calling us to do, is to trust the Lord. He's the one who will do the forgiving. I don't need to be doing the forgiving here. God needs to be the one doing the forgiving. And what we need to do is we need to accept that forgiveness. And we need to believe His Word. Our forgiveness. Our forgiveness does not stand on our feelings. Our forgiveness stands on the power of the living Word of God. On Scripture. And whenever we start having those feelings, they start bubbling back up to the surface, those feelings of, of doubt and, and guilt once again, what we need to do is we need to open up our Bibles and we need to immerse ourselves in the promises that God has laid forth there. And we need to pray for God's help here. We need to ask God for His help in all of this. Lord, I know that You have forgiven me of these things. Your Word has given me that assurance. 
And so, Lord, help me to believe those promises. Help me not to be ladled with false guilt. Lord, help me to trust You more. That, that is what gives us the ability to truly leave the past in the past. And so as I turn back to Philippians chapter 3 where we began this morning, I cannot help but think about the man who wrote that passage. And I cannot help but think about the past that Paul says was behind him. What was that past filled with? This is a man who was a persecutor of the church. Here is a man who bound and delivered Christians to be imprisoned. Here is a man who actually stood by and approved of the execution of innocent Christians. And yet Paul then says in Philippians 3 and in verse 13, that I am able to forget what lies behind, and I am able to strain forward to what lies ahead. What I am saying to you this morning, is that if Paul can leave that kind of past behind, you and I can leave our past behind. We must be determined not to let the past control us. We can learn from the past. There is some benefit to learning from the past. But we're not going to let that dominate our lives and control us. We must refuse to allow the devil to keep beating us up and throwing these rocks at us over things that God has already forgiven us of. Instead, We need to make certain, number one, that we are forgiven, that we've taken the steps to be truly forgiven. We need to, secondly, we need to rethink our conception, our mental image of the Lord, and we need to be thinking of Him as the one who longs to forgive us. We need to, thirdly, accept our identity in Christ Jesus as the forgiven children of God. And then even after all of that, if we still have more doubts, then we need to get our Bibles out. And we need to read and we need to stand upon the promises of Scripture. When we do that, when we do that, we will be able to leave the past behind. Now, as we're standing here on the dawn of a brand new year, I can really think of no better way to start a new year than to make a commitment to serve Jesus Christ all the days of our lives. If you're not a Christian, that commitment is forged In the waters of baptism. You come into contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. Your sins are washed away. You are forgiven. And you are changed. You are a new creature. You're a Christian. You're one of God's children. Maybe that commitment to Christ though, maybe that means for those of us who are Christians, is that means that we need to be more more diligent in our daily discipleship. In our faithfulness to the Lord on a day-to-day basis. You're here this morning, you need to obey the gospel, or if you need to commit yourself to renewed service to the Lord, if there is sin in your life that has not been forgiven, brother or sister, can I just say right now, first of all, as we sing this song in just a moment, we're going to sing the song, I Need Thee Every Hour. You think about the words of that song, and it may just be that while we're singing that song, you want to pray to God for forgiveness. You want to confess those things that are in your life and get, get, unpack that. Get rid of that guilt so that you can strain forward and move forward in your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It may be, though, that you'll want to come before your brothers and sisters and admit sin and ask for the encouragement and the prayers and the strength that your brothers and sisters here can provide and the help that we long to be able to give you in whatever way that we can. We're here to help folks serve the Lord, whether that's to begin serving Jesus for the very first time or to recommit yourself to serving Him once again. Whatever your need may be, this is your opportunity. This is your invitation. It is the Lord's invitation 
Why don't you respond to it right now? Make your way down front while we stand and while we sing.